good evening, She Rises. Hope you're having a great evening. Great Thursday. We are getting ready to get started with week four of our study. This week is Adorning the Bride. And we're going to keep on digging into our Becoming a Wise Bridesmaid slash Attending the Bride of Christ. So I'm just going to give everybody a minute to get notified, let you start getting your books, um, uh, your notebooks, your Bibles. You can start sending up your likes, your hearts, so I know that you're on. I'm not sure um, how often I'll get to see comments. Good evening, Catherine. Obviously, I can see one comment now. <laughs> Um, I'm not even sure how many will get notified. Some people are telling me they're not getting notifications from Facebook right now. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Um, so that's fine, but I'm going to go ahead and get started. Good evening, Miranda. Hi, Lucy. Yeah, Lucy, I don't know. A lot of people are telling me they're not getting notifications on the live. So hate that. Um, hi, Diana. Hi, Jessica. Good to see you, girls. Hi, Susie. Bless you. Um, but the good news is we have the YouTube, we have the podcast. So once I at least record these, you can hop back on and um, dig into the study. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. Hi, Sherry. Good evening. Um, pray, and then we're going to get started digging in. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time and just for the opportunity to gather wherever we are across this planet um, to just look into your word. Lord, we just ask that you would take these words, that you would allow them to fall as fertile seeds upon the soil of our lives, Lord, that they would prepare us and equip us to be the wise bridesmaids, attendants that you've called us to be. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you teach us, would you show us how to attend your bride correctly? I just pray for every uh, woman who will be listening to this study, that you would bless her, that you would bless her time with you as she digs into your word, to hear your voice in these last days. And Lord, we just give you this time and we ask that you and you alone would be glorified for it's in your holy and matchless name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, girls, well, let's go ahead and get started this week, week four, adorning the bride, what this looks like. Last week, we explored the mysteries of coming into a divine partnership with the Lord and that relationship of God the Father overseeing this caduceus, this betrothal phase. He's allowing us to join him really for our own benefit. But before we can understand the church's call to make herself ready, we're talking about adorning the bride. We need to understand, we need to explore the concept of adorning. In fact, the Bible describes in Revelation 21, if you look at verse 2, 
Revelation 21, verse 2. It says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So that word adorned there in the Greek is cosmio. Cosmio, it's literally a verb. So we know that it's an active word telling us something. And it means to put in order, to put in order, to make ready to prepare. So if you think about how similar it is to our word cosmos, and that Yahweh, that God himself was creating in the sense that he was putting in order. He was making ready. He was preparing this place for his creation. Therefore, that's what we're looking at with the bride. Quite literally, the bride is adorned to make herself ready for the groom. And last week we talked about our individual duty. Each individual, each believer has the responsibility to help her prepare. Remember that I said the church, you're not the church. You individually are not the church. You're not the bride. The church is a collective body of people. We individually help make up the bride. The one entity, Jesus is not a polygamist. He's not married to a ton of different people. <laughs> it's one bride, but each individual collectively makes up the unit, the bride as a whole. So you attend the bride. I attend the bride. We come together to adorn the bride. So. What I want to look at now as we move into adornment, our collective idea, obviously, of adornment, that joint effort, I want you to think about a modern bride's preparations. So if we think of a wedding day, because that's what we're preparing for, right? We think in modern day terms of the bride, except for, I don't want you to hold to that tightly, because when we think of the modern day wedding, when we think of a modern day bride, what do we think of? Well, we, we think of the bride and everything that's focused on her outward appearance, right? Everything is about the outward appearance of how the wedding is going to look, how the bride is going to look. Unlike the modern day brides and our focus on our outward physical appearance, Christ bride is collectively called to focus on her inward appearance. I want to look at a couple of scriptures. The first one being 1 Samuel 16, 7, because it helps us to understand the heart and the mind of Christ. It says the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. See, it's the natural flesh inclination. We are always judging someone by an appearance. We're looking at how that person looks to see their worth, to gauge if there's someone that we're attracted to or we would spend time with. And the Lord's saying he doesn't look at that at all. 
It doesn't even come into the equation of what your outward appearance looks like. Another scripture I want to look at is 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. And so again, a reminder for the church. It says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, listen, I want to get something right here before we move on tonight to look at the lesson of adorning the bride, the understanding of what it means to be a wise bridesmaid and to attend the bride properly. Here's what I don't want to do. This is another one of those scriptures that has become distorted and we can create a false um, doctrine within theology and in denominations and make this scripture say something that it doesn't actually say. See, Paul is not saying that taking care of yourself is a sin, that you can't wear makeup, you can't wear fine clothes, you can't take care of your hair and have it done beautifully, you can't wear jewelry. We're actually going to see that scripturally in a minute, how we know that's not true, all right? I want you to pay attention to what he actually says so we don't start heaping man-made traditions and doctrines as burdens onto people so that this false theology takes off. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as these things. He's not saying you can't do those things. What he's saying is, if your idea is my worth, my identity, my beauty, my acceptance, my status needs to come on me spending all my time on my outward appearance, and that's what I need to put the focus on, then you're wrong. Because to the Lord, that has no bearing on your salvation. I have seen some of the most stunningly beautiful people who are the ugliest human beings I've ever met. So see, the outward appearance doesn't matter to the Lord. And yet, nowhere does it teach us to neglect ourselves or that we can't take care of ourselves. What he's saying is that's not your focus. This isn't where all your time and your investment is going. It's the inward spirit. Because from your inward beauty will outflow outwardly to the beauty that you are, that people are drawn to. So see, the idea here as we begin to adorn the bride is that everything that the Lord is going to help us focus on is going to be this inward change. Because as we transform inwardly for him, the beauty on the outside will just draw in. And it doesn't have to be a physical beauty. It's just the beauty of a spirit and a personality that people are drawn to because of Christ. All right. So. Now, as we move on, we understand what adornment means. To adorn is to prepare, to get, to make ready, which is what our call is to do. So now we think about adorning the bride with ornaments. 
And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight in our study. That word ornament actually comes from the same root word as adorned. It's a quality. In fact, in ancient times, the Jewish, the Jewish bride's wedding attire actually included handmade ornaments as they were sewing. See, remember, we're in the Kedushan. We're in the betrothal phase where she's making her garments ready. She's supposed to be preparing her garments. And part of these garments was the sewing on either to the garment itself of these beautiful ornaments or there was ornaments being made that would be worn with the wedding attire. And it was a great source of delight for the bride. She could not wait to show them off to her bridegroom. And just as the Jewish bride would array herself in these ornaments, Christ's bride has been called to put on these ornaments as well. These specific spiritual adornments, these ornaments that are going to reflect the love and the grace and the honor that we have of being set apart, of saying yes to the engagement, this betrothal phase we're in. And the church's ornaments, these divine ornaments, they are going to work in and through her, through four specific areas. Martha Lowley, who wrote the attending um, the Bride gives probably one of my all-time favorite acronyms. Most of you know me as a writer and a teacher. My goal and my calling is whenever um, the Lord has me write Bible studies and to teach is to take some of the deepest things from the Word of God and bring them into the simplest of terms, right? Nobody wants to sit around and, and talk in very highly educated um, most of us aren't Harvard valedictorians, all right? And so we're not looking for all these big words with no meaning and no explanation to talk over each other. It's The goal is to bring it down to the simplest of terms so that at least someone like me can understand them and hopefully I can communicate that to others. Well, whenever I can find acronyms that become these um, beneficial tools to helping me remember some of the most important things about the word of God, I jump all over them. I love them. And so Martha has this acronym that I'm going to, um, I'm using tonight from her study because it's one that I use in my own life to help me remember how to be that wise bridesmaid, what my call is to attend the bride of Christ correctly. All right, so I want you to write this down in your notes. And the rest of tonight is going to simply be breaking down this acronym to give you the four spiritual ornaments that are going to make us wise bridesmaids and help us to attend the bride of Christ correctly. All right, acronym, wife. Write that down. Wife should be very easy for you to remember when we're thinking of the bride of Christ. What are we preparing her for? The role of becoming his wife. And so whenever you think of the word wife, I want you to remember four spiritual ornaments that are a command for us to adorn the bride to make herself ready for his return. I'm going to give you the four words for those letters with a scripture. 
You can write those down. And after I give you the words with the scripture and a brief statement, we're going to spend tonight breaking down each one of those words. All right. Number one, the W, the W stands for worship, worship. Jeremiah 2 verse 32 says, does a maiden forget her jewelry? A bride her wedding ornaments, yet my people have forgotten me. See, the point of worship becoming this adornment part of our um, of the bride, our ornament that we're putting on, is that true worship acknowledges God for in the first place. For who he is. See, Jeremiah 2.32 actually has God contrasting the Israelites' failure to even acknowledge him. And that failure is with the bride's careful remembrance of what? Do you forget your wedding ornaments? Yet you've forgotten me. You've forgotten your first love. See, she was called to treasure her wedding garments, and we must continually treasure his rightful place in our life. We'll look at that in a minute. Next letter, I. I stands for instruction. Instruction. I want you to look with me at the book of Proverbs. So go with me to um, Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter one, and I'm just going to read verses eight and nine. All right. So Proverbs one verses eight and nine. It's pretty self-explanatory. Here's what it says. My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament to your head and chains about your neck all right so tonight we'll look at why receiving instruction grows us in the things of the lord to prepare us for his return it leads to our spiritual maturity it's instruction through words and through actions and it describes it as an ornament of grace Next letter, in wife, F stands for fellowship, fellowship. I want you now to go over to the book of Ezekiel with me. All right, look at Ezekiel um, chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, and I'm going to start at verse 8. 16 verse 8 when I passed by you again and looked upon you indeed your time was the time of love so I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness yes I swore an oath to you and I entered into covenant with you and you became mine says the Lord God then I washed you in water Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood 
and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and I covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. Okay, listen to what he's saying in Ezekiel. The way that God prepares his bride is he's preparing her to become his wife is in fine linens, expensive clothes, beautiful crowns, very nice jewelry. See, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having this beautiful outward appearance as long as it's not your goal, your focus that understanding that it's the inward beauty that is your focus that is of great value and worth and so here in ezekiel he's given us this picture of this special fellowship this love relationship where they're coming together with one another god is actively pursuing this fellowship with his people and it's done through the imagery of marriage and preparing Israel as his beautiful bride. He adorns her with ornaments. We'll gain a greater understanding of why fellowship is such an important part of preparing the bride. Finally, E. E and wife stands for evangelism. C. Isaiah 49 tells us, lift up your eyes and look around. All your sons gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. You see, evangelism is a very important ornament to adorn the bride with, to prepare her for the coming of her bridegroom. It is our response to God's command to go and tell others, to extend the wedding invitation, to share the ketubah with them, to invite them to become a part of the bride. Isaiah 49, 18 is literally describing God's victory over Israel's enemy as an ornament put on the bride. You know, this fascinates me before we start breaking these four words down, um, simply because in evangelism, it's the opportunity to go out and it is this ornament you are wearing of victory. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you can share something with me because I have never heard of anything like this. But in our humanity, in this world, we're in a very real battle, right? And there's always wars that are raging around us or at least 
on the boiling point of raging. And what happens is I can't imagine any group of people or any nation coming to get ready for war. And any nation or group of people before they go into war knowing, I mean, like with 100% certainty, knowing the outcome. Like I'm going into this war and we have the victory. See, because if that was true, here's what common sense tells me. If the victory is assured, then any other human being or any other nation, well, they're not showing up for that war. <laughs> they wouldn't be stupid enough. If they already have the guarantee of the final outcome that they've lost, um, that they're going to be embarrassed, that they're going to die, that their kingdom will be lost, they'll have no real power, they're going to be put to shame. Who shows up for that battle? See, you go into a war because you literally believe that you stand a chance of winning. That is completely different than what you and I are dealing with. The adornment or the adorning of the bride with the ornament of evangelism, as we're going to see tonight, is an assured victory. We are the only people on the planet in the middle of a battle that we already know has been won. And yet, instead of walking around with this ornament, this badge in the midst of a battle going, <laughs> if you want to boast about anything, if you want to strut around about anything, it should be that daily you're going into these battles against the enemy going, you've already lost. You have no victory. I have already been assured of winning this battle. That sometime as I get through, even though I may have some scars or some wounds, I'm coming out already victorious. And yet the bride doesn't do that. We spend most of our time walking around like we're defeated. I'm not really sure how this situation is going to turn out. There's a good chance I'm going down in this battle. I'm pretty sure the enemy has a victory. And yet Christ has told us the enemy's already been crushed. There is no victory for him. And because the enemy is aware of that, because evangelism is the opportunity for us to go out in absolute assurance that we've already won a battle and we want to bring people in to wit to know they've won this battle. We literally walk around, not just as wounded soldiers, defeated, defeated. Our heads hung down. We are literally trying to make God a liar. Whereas God has said to the enemy, you are crushed. You are defeated. You have no victory. No weapon formed against my people shall prosper. We go, here you go, Satan. Here's your weapon. You'll prosper. Let me encourage you, Satan. There's still a chance you can get a victory. In fact, let me help you along by giving you the victory in my life today. Instead of walking around <laughs> with this ornament strutting through the battle going, oh, you can throw those flaming arrows at me. Oh yeah, you may be able to sting me, but I'm still walking through because I still am assured the victory and you have no chance.
we'll look at that again tonight in the adorning of the bride. Nevertheless, the early church is our example. The early church is our example of seeing these ornaments passionately cultivated through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm moved by the early churches as we look at Acts 2 through 4 and we see them putting this in to practice. The early church recognizing her desperate need for Christ, her utter dependence upon his Holy Spirit. And she faithfully relied on him to direct and to guide her. I want to spend the rest of tonight breaking down these four letters now. We're going to dive into each one for a few minutes deeply. Why? Because each one of these ornaments, as the Lord has been shaking us in this season, awaking in us, calling us to return and to remain. He's calling us to come back and to finish preparing our wedding garments, to get these ornaments ready. And we have to know how to do it. We have to see what we have neglected because we have forgotten our first love. So I want to start with worship, adorning through worship, our focus. And this ornament applies to each individual believer as well as the collective church that we're looking at. So I want you to type in a response for me first, okay? You can write this in your notebook, but I also want you to type this out for me. I want you to tell me what comes to your mind personally when you hear the word worship. Go ahead and type it out. What comes to your mind, and just be honest, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? As you're typing out those answers, I'll start telling you that I'm pretty sure your answers are going to vary widely in what comes to your mind first about worship. Because why? Well, worship is a term that's frequently used, but it is rarely defined. See, while the Bible doesn't give us a specific definition of worship, it gives us a ton of examples in scriptures so that you understand it. Most people, when they think of worship, will think of praise. They will think of singing and music. I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm coming in praise and worship. All right, we can think of these name or these words for worship. The thing is, is that because it is such a frequent word used and thrown out there, I fear we've lost the actual understanding of what worship really is. So that we end up showing up, becoming what Jesus said. Isaiah was right, you hypocrites. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. See, it's very easy in our generation to say, well, I can praise him with my lips, with my singing. I can praise him by lifting up my hands and calling on his name. 
with my lips and with my hands. But the Lord says for worship, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking at your heart and your mind and your actions and see the word worship. If you've studied with me before, you understand I taught you what the word worship actually means. The word itself, proskuneo in Greek, literally means to kiss, to blow kisses, to adore. Understand this, worship is literally an intimate response back to your bridegroom. Every time you worship him, it is like you are throwing kisses to him. You are in absolute adoration of the one who loves you and has given himself over for you. But in doing that, even though it is a very intimate act, you have to understand that worship is literally a response to the truth of who God is. You see, we can make it very easy because we are a selfish people by nature. We're very self-driven. It's all about what I'm looking for. In fact, when people nowadays are looking for a um, place that they want to worship, if they're looking for it to be more spiritual, as they say, whatever it is, it's very easy for us to go, I'm going to look for a group of people, a community, because remember I said, you don't go to church. Church is not a building. It's not a place you go. <laughs> we, the bride is the church. It's a community of people. So the community of people I want to go, I'm looking for are the people that meet my needs, like everything that I want. And so we end up doing that with God. And it's like the kind of God that I want to worship needs to be the kind of God I'm comfortable with. Like he's the kind of God that speaks to me. He fits my flesh. He fits my idea. He fits my truth. He fits what I like about God. And so once I start fashioning him and creating him in my mind, I create God in my own image. And I like that God and that's the God I'll worship. But that's not worship. I want you to understand that is no different than what Aaron and the Israelites were doing in the wilderness, which made God very angry because they were committing adultery. No, see, worship, the only way you worship is if you're worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So in other words, to int have intimacy with God, to be throwing kisses, to be intimately one with him, it means you literally come into saying yes to this engagement by recognizing God for just who he says he is, whether you like it or not, and saying, I choose to worship you for who you are. I choose to love you for who you are, for who your word and your spirit has declared that you are. See, when we're controlled by the flesh, everything's about us. And that includes the God that we're trying to serve, the God that will let us do what we want to do, the God that will not discipline us or correct us or step on our toes or make us change. No, we don't want that. 
And it's only when we acknowledge God for who he is and what he's actually come to do that we're even truly worshiping him. Otherwise, we're just hypocrites going through the motions of this outward worship that mean nothing to the Lord. Because the truth is, true worship, well, it transforms us. Because as we cooperate with God, as we receive his Holy Spirit, our engagement ring, he begins to renew our mind. He begins to change our thinking. He begins to take our thoughts out of life's distractions and the desires of the flesh. He begins to refocus our attention on his holiness and his goodness and his will and his desires. And as we begin to come together and unite in genuine worship, lifting up our bridegroom for who he is and what he's doing, then the bride is becoming transformed, radiant, renewed. And see, the more that the church allows God to transform her, well, the more she is then able to discern his good and pleasing and perfect will, as Romans 12, 2 tells us. See, we cannot discern what it is that God wants through worship unless we are spending time in his word and abiding by his spirit. That is the difference with worship. You see, worship is the responsibility, but it is also the privilege of every individual who has been invited to the wedding and said yes to the betrothal. And our attitudes and our actions will affect the quality of worship in the church. Look, we saw that. I taught on this for She Rises before. When David worshiped incorrectly and he led others into incorrect worship, what happened to Uriah? He died. He was struck dead. The whole community was punished because their worship, even though they were worshiping and dancing with their lips and their hands, even though they felt like their intentions were good, they were not obeying God and his way of worship that was pleasing. And instead, judgment came upon them. Because you see, God's serious. Worship is an intimate thing. It is literally like the start of intercourse, if that's how you want to put it. It is this kissing this intimacy and God does not want that when it is your heart's not in it when it's false when there's so much adultery and defilement mixed with it and see worship can only be experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit who can teach us to worship rightly anyway because ultimately the fruit of the spirit-led worship is simply obedience. It's not even singing. Yes, we can sing psalms and hymns and beautiful songs back to the Lord. But ultimately, worship to the Lord is nothing more than obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice, the Lord says. See, to him, worship is you putting his principles in 
to practice. Because authentic worship that worships God for who he is and trusts what he says and what he has done leads to holiness, which prepares the bride for Christ's return. That's why we're in the betrothal phase right now. It's the whole point of the Caducian phase. It's the whole reason that he's left us here and gone away to prepare because he's left us in the betrothal phase to prepare our garments. Let's move on to the next letter, I. I, I told you, stands for instruction. The second ornament, we put on worship. But worship has to be authentic and genuine and led by the Spirit and full of truth or it's not worship at all. Now we move into instruction. The next ornament that adorns the bride and one that few of us like. You see, especially in our culture, we have been trained to become independent. No, I need to be capable of doing and thinking for myself. I want to make my own decisions. I know what's best for me. And in fact, perhaps you're inclined to avoid advice and instruction at all because your life is built upon the hearty, I'll do it myself. I don't need anyone. I'm going to let people see how strong I really am. This world will not think that I am meek and humble and weak. I would never let someone think that about me. In fact, I need people to know that I can dominate over them and just how strong I am. I want to come up with my own way of doing things. And yet the adornment for the bride was all about instruction. That Hebrew word there for instruction in the Old Testament is musar, musar, M-U-S-A-R. And it literally means discipline, discipline. <laughs> in other words, it teaches you how to live correctly in the fear of the Lord. It disciplines you. But... The Septuagint in the Greek actually changes the word musar from the Hebrew and brings it into the Greek to the word paideia. But it doesn't really change the meaning of the word at all. It simply means the education or the training to cultivate the mind and the morals. So in other words, both words literally mean to discipline in order to educate or to train you in your thinking and your morals. That is the word instruction. See, the early church, when we look back, we understand that they were rooted in the word. I want to go back to, obviously, the book of wisdom, to Proverbs. So I want you to flip over there with me tonight for this lesson on instruction. And I'm going to read a couple of verses in Proverbs. The first one's going to be in Proverbs chapter 3, if you want to go there with me, verses 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Here's what it says. My son, do not despise the chastening, which is the discipline of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, well, he corrects. 
just as the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. I want to stop there for a minute. Where have you heard that before? Well, if you've ever studied Hebrews, <laughs> those words should be very familiar to you. See, the Lord says, don't despise my discipline. And we're going to see this in a minute. Flip over to the very next chapter, Proverbs chapter 4. Just want to look at verse 13. It says, take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. That's pretty self-explanatory. Proverbs 23 is the last one I want to look at. Flip over to 23. I'm just going to read verse um, 12. And here's what it says. Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to the words of knowledge. Okay. So if, if, if we've just learned that the Hebrew word for instruction means discipline. Can you think of another word that comes from that word, from discipline, which means instruction? What word comes out of that? Disciple. <laughs> Discipleship. See, the point of a disciple is one who is being disciplined. They're being instructed. They're being educated and taught in the ways that change their thinking and their morals. It should make complete sense to you now of why we would be disciples. It's why Jesus, the very word himself, came to make disciples, to instruct others and discipleship instruction is going to take many forms as we are adorning the bride. Teaching, admonishing, encouraging, correcting, rebuking, equipping. See, all of these things are for the purpose of helping the believer, the genuine believer, grow and become refined as they're being set apart and sanctified in the betrothal phase. In fact, it was Christ who directed his bride to teach others to obey. See, that is the Great Commission. Teach others to obey all that I have commanded. In fact, in response, it was the way we see the infant church commanded. Go with me now to the book of Acts. I want to look at two scriptures specifically in the book of Acts tonight. The first one is going to be in Acts chapter 11. All right, Acts chapter 11. And I want to look at 25 and 26. And here's what it says. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught taught, that means instructed, a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Listen, the point here is that they're taught by disciples. Disciples are called to teach. 
And since we're all disciples of Christ and we've all been given the great commission, we're called to disciple, to instruct others, to teach them to obey. And it says that it was at Antioch that they were first called Christians. See, that word Christian simply means a little Christ. You're literally being transformed into the image of looking like Christ looked on this earth. And I can tell you something. This world is not going to like that. In fact, it is the goal of the enemy to make sure to attack you anytime you even look remotely close to Christ and reflect his image. Who do you think you are, Christ? You must think you're holier than thou. You're so self-righteous. Look, these same worn out, tired, flaming arrow arguments come at the church to silence them and to stop you from being holier than the world, from looking just like Christ, from being righteous, not of yourself, but yes, Christ's righteousness put upon yourself. And they, Satan wants to make you feel bad about that. And yet it's the very thing Christ has commanded you to be. Whether the world likes it or not, they won't. He says, if the world hates you, by the way, they will. Remember, it hated me first. So they don't really hate you. They hate Christ in you. And we seem to have drifted away from that in these long centuries of sleep that have birthed this apostate church. Finally, Acts 17 verse 11 Acts 17 verse 11 and here's what the word of the Lord says these were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and they searched the scriptures daily daily to find out whether these things were so listen these are the Bereans the early church, the Bereans are being commended by Paul. They are literally the foundation for who we should be as Christians, as disciples. And Paul sets a very good example here. In fact, it's one of the things that I gauge that the Lord gives me in the spirit first for how I teach as a women's um, ministry teacher. Why I always ask you to have a notebook, to write down everything and then to test everything I say. Because let me tell you, I have found in this generation uh, a big chunk of the men that I've worked with and worked for behind the pulpits are the exact opposite of Paul, which is a very big problem. Revelation tells me to test them to see where they are in their calling, if they're really working for the Lord or not. And here's the deal with Paul. Paul literally commends the Bereans for testing him. He says, whatever I preach to you, I commend you for searching the scriptures daily to see if what I'm saying is true. Because if it's not, you need to dismiss it or go and correct Paul. I venture to say there are many that I've worked with in this day that when you test their sermons and their teachings and you confront them, they go straight into attack mode and tell you you're judgmental. Who are you, a mere lay person, to come to an ordained person like them? That you're used by Satan to stir up division and sow discord? See, they don't, they're not commending you for searching the scriptures. They're not asking you to search your opinion or your preference. Paul's saying search the scriptures to test if what is being taught to you lines up with scriptures. And if it doesn't, dismiss it because it's not authentic worship. 
and it is false instruction. And they are defiled ornaments that are being put upon the bride to make a filthy garment. See, the Lord is looking for the, those who will search their ketubah, his word, daily to see if these things are so. It's why I tell you every single one of my lessons, test it. And if you have a question and something doesn't line up with the word, then message me. Iron sharpens iron. And we need to be able to look at the whole counsel of God and his word alone. Paul's not putting himself on a pedestal above the word of God. He's putting the word of God above him and his instruction. Because you see, like worship, the ornament of godly instruction is essential to the church's transformation. We cannot be prepared without it. In fact, you saw Paul and Barnabas stayed for a year to instruct these disciples, these Christians. And we know that that first happens through God with the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says you have no need for anyone to teach you for you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us all things. But with that said, while godly instruction begins with God and is solely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to teach truth and to understand and to have words of knowledge, God equips us and calls us to instruct one another. In fact, Romans 15, 14, Paul says, I am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. See, Paul is not teaching here your self-righteous goodness. He's not, he knows no one's good. No, not one, only God. So he's not coming in going, you're full of goodness in yourself. No, no, no. This is to believers. And he's saying, I am confident you are now full of goodness because you're full of Christ and Christ goodness dwells in you. Therefore, you are complete in knowledge and you are fully capable of instructing one another in the truths of Christ. He fully understands that it is God's spirit that empowers us to fulfill the great commission to go out and disciple and instruct people to obey all. In fact, we are admonished as we look in 2 Timothy 2 that those who are called to provide godly instruction, they were to endure sound doctrine, sound teaching, so that they may gently and patiently teach others. Therefore, the only people in the wrong in this day and age are those who believe that other believers don't have any right to instruct you. Oh, mind your own business. Who are you to make a judgment? Who are you to correct or to rebuke? Who are you to admonish or to instruct or to give godly wisdom? You worry about your own life. I'll worry about mine. Well, the only person in the wrong there is you, if you have that attitude. Therefore, you have become a tool for Satan to make sure that we don't fulfill our command. Look, this doesn't give us the freedom to just be busybodies, all right? Don't run the other way and say, because we have a command and a calling and we're to be teaching that this means I can be a busybody and just go get in everybody's business and everybody wants to hear my opinion. That is also not what this means. What this means is out of love, 
and care for attending the bride, we're called to instruct one another. And therefore, if you're able to instruct others, you should also be able to receive instruction yourself. See, godly instruction comes from the written word that's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Christ Church has been called to consult her priceless ketubah daily. It alone contains the principles and the wisdom that she needs to apply to every challenge she's going to face in this world, in this battle. You do not need pop psychology. You do not need some spiritually enlightened guru or yogi or psychic or self-help book. You don't need the things of the world that God is not in and has nothing to do. They are controlled by the new age, the demonic forces. You need the word and the spirit. And they have given you everything that you need. Well, at least that's what the word says, unless we have decided to also call God a liar. Therefore, we can't truly worship him because he says, my word has given you everything you need. My spirit is your counselor, your helper. He counsels you. He is going to instruct you. If you spend time in the word, you will find anything you need to deal with whatever battle you're facing in your mind, in your marriage, in your family, in your parenting, with coworkers, with friends, with people who have disappointed you, with your uh, with the attacks from the enemy of your past of your shame it does not matter whatever it is you can find it in the word of god and you can count on the fact that the holy spirit will counsel you instruct you and give you ultimate victory how priceless is our ketubah to us instead we are not adorning ourselves with that we bring in the things of this world to counsel us things that are on sinking sand and our life never gets better and we just bounce from man and woman and helper and helper and it doesn't mean that men and women can't give godly wisdom but if they're not basing it solely upon the word then even their their wisdom is foolishness it's pointless you see receiving instruction is not always easy it's not always fun but it is always for our good and it's through our obedience to his instruction that God will then produce an abundant harvest of righteousness and peace because he allows us, as Romans 12, uh, Hebrews 12 says, to share in his holiness. See, that is the whole goal of the betrothal phase. It is why the ornament of instruction, of sound doctrine, is absolutely necessary to preparing the bride for his return. F and the word wife. Fellowship fellowship it's the third ornament that we are adorning the bride with according to acts 242 the early church devoted themselves we talked about this last week daily to meeting for number one instruction they were all about worship and instruction but then for the breaking of bread and fellowship 
the original Greek word there for fellowship is koinonia. See, koinonia doesn't mean church. It simply means the fellowship of the community. Koinonia is the community. It is the body of Christ coming together for fellowship in this intimate bond of becoming one, kinship, serving one another, sharing, sacrificing, doing life together. Because remember, as I said, the church is nothing more than a fellowship of believers. And as fellow members that make up the bride, we are to be spending time together, encouraging one another, serving one another, sharing our blessings with one another. Because see, that true fellowship begins with God. It is God who called us into fellowship with Christ, with he and his son. And as we begin to walk in God's ways and in that fellowship, we're sharing in this intimate relationship with him, which allows us to have intimacy with his whole body. So you have to know the whole body of your spouse. You don't get to just pick one part of their body. What happens if your spouse picks one person, just one little piece, part of your body and says, well, that's the only thing I like. Like, I like your eyes. The rest of you, ugh, I could pretty much do without the rest of your body. Do you understand that's what we're saying to Christ? What we've allowed Satan to do by coming in through the centuries, piecing the bride to pieces, scattering her throughout, which is why we have denominations. And because we won't stand in unity for truth, collectively for truth, we won't look at all the giftedness and the beauty within the fellowship and the different callings of the body as a blessing to each other. We kind of huddle to, uh, well, uh, only if you have the gift of tongues. I only want to hang out with the people that have this gift. And if, and if you don't have that gift, it must mean you don't have faith and we can't all hang out. And I'm only over here if I have the gift of, you know, um, prayer and teaching and baptizing people. And you're over there with tongues and that's weird. And I don't even believe that exists. So we're going to huddle over here and just use our two or three little gifts and make up our denomination. And we're back in judges, the wife that's raped and mutilated and chopped to pieces and spread out and dead at the door. And then we read those things as we study through Judges in horror, not even realizing that the Lord's holding up a mirror going, oh, but that's you. That's what you've done to my bride. Return. See, fellowship, it, Romans 1. Go with me over now to Romans chapter 1. I want you to listen to what Paul says here. This is going to be really important. And we got to get this doctrine right here, guys. All right. We have to get this right. Romans 1, I want to look at verse 11 and 12. And here's what he says. Paul said, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established, or that means encouraged 
That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of you and me. Now listen, Paul longs to be with the church here for fellowship face to face. He treasures this idea of being one intimately face to face with other believers. He yearns for these times of togetherness. But here's what Paul's not saying, so that, again, we build some theology for a denomination off of this. Paul is not saying, I long to see you so I can come and lay a hand on you and give you a spiritual gift. Like, I can, you can't do that. <laughs> see, the Holy Spirit gives the gifts as he wills. That's completely up to the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, I long to be with you so I can impart my spiritual gift to you. In other words, I want to bless you and edify you and encourage you by using my spiritual gifts that I have so that you can partake of those. And then I want to be around you so that you're using your spiritual gifts to encourage me, to impart to me, to strengthen me. And therefore, as we're all working in our gifts together, we're blessing each other. We're not in competition. We're not in judgment over the other person's gifts. Obviously, we have to test and discern, but we're not in judgment over their gifts. We're looking for the Holy Spirit to be working and unifying us. And Paul says, I long for that. We can be mutually encouraged in the faith. You see, when you look at the language there in the Greek for that phrase, mutually encouraged, it's Simparkalio, and it breaks down into three. Sin, S-Y-N, that word sin just denotes, denotes community. That's what it means, community. In fact, we know that because it's where we get the very word synagogue. Para, the, the next part of that word there simply means among or alongside. Therefore, when we move into Kaleo, that's where we get the meaning to call or to invite. It's the root word that comes from that is ecclesia, which means church. Therefore, when you take the definitions of mutually encouraged together, Paul is literally saying, I long for the mutual encouragement of when the community of believers comes together, comes together alongside each other to be the church. I want to be the church with you. And then we're encouraged by each other's faith and our callings, and our giftedness. See, that's the only way that the bride will ever radiate. Otherwise, she looks battered and torn and filthy to the world, and they want nothing to do with her. But this illustration of godly fellowship shows unity. See, no one fellowships with their enemies. Now, you fellowship with those that you love and you're intimate with. You have a connection with. That's the church family, the body of Christ.
Unfortunately, we have allowed the enemy to have his way with even this ornament so that we're not adorning ourselves properly. You see, God does not intend for any believer to remain apart from the church. When I said this before, I meant it. And I'll say it again by his spirit. There is no such thing as a personal and private relationship with Jesus Christ. There is absolutely nothing in scripture that tells you your religion is a private matter. That's only for those who are ashamed. If you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. No, there is no place in scripture where you will ever see that for the church itself is not an individual. It only means community. The Great Commission alone will throw that false thought process and teaching out the door. Go. Go to people and teach. See, fellowship is the glue, the godly glue that holds the church, the body together. And yet many professing Christians today are not actively involved. They are playing no role in adorning the actual bride. They may be adorning their self because maybe they're a false convert or maybe they've been wounded. Why? Because even though the explanations that can be offered or the excuses can be offered of why they believe they can sit at home and do church even though that's not church. <laughs> they may think that that's doing worship, but that's not really worship. This lack of activity really has a lot to do outside of that with the lack of godly fellowship within the body. So many people disconnected because they feel unneeded and unwanted. Just a few select people in the church because it's from a family or that's the people in our area and these are the only gifts we like that that we're not going to spend time praying about or looking. I know I've I've been sent among those churches. I've worked among those churches. I know what's very alive today and it's not the body. It is Laodicea. But see, people feel unneeded and unwanted. Like, well, their gifts are the only ones being used. And so my gifts, I'm not needed. I'm not wanted here. Or now someone's in competition with me over the gift instead of the gifts mutually encouraging each other. Uh, or I'm made to feel ashamed or crazy for the gift or the calling. And yet I know God's given it to me and it lines up with his word. But but this church wants nothing to do with that gift. And so they make me feel bad about myself or I don't fit the outward appearance that they want or my status or or maybe I'm not giving as much money as they want. It becomes this click club. And people are wounded. I'm not talking about people that run away because you preach truth and that steps on their toes and you don't tolerate sin and you endure holiness. There are a ton of people out there in this world that have left the church for that and then tell people the church offended me and wounded me. They will answer to God for that. You don't change that for the world, regardless of how they feel. Let them wrestle with God. This is about you making them feel unneeded and unwanted 
because you're too busy only promoting a few. You're not adorning the bride with the importance of fellowship and allowing every single individual to come in and mutually encourage the other with their gifts. Serving. And it does no good for you to even come into a church and believe that you're worshiping by sitting in a pew and letting everyone serve you while you do nothing. God will not be pleased with you on that day. I mean, you can find plenty of people to tickle your ear and let you come in and drop money in a plate and sit in a pew and leave. Again, I've worked for those men. But they're lying to you. <laughs> they're not instructing you. Where is the godly adornment of instruction of telling you the proper way that Christ is looking for the obedient bride? And not just that, but how selfish of us to put everything on our pastors and our elders and believe that they have to carry the weight of the ministry and the calling that we just suck them dry from their families and give, give, give. And then the rest of the week, we have no real time for them. Again, their ministry is supposed to be a joy because as they give to us, we bless them and encourage them back. See, the ornament of godly fellowship enriches the church and it fulfills her ultimate purpose of making Christians. It unifies believers. It causes us with all of the beautiful spiritual gifts that have been given to come together to adorn the bride. Finally, the E. As we close tonight, the E for evangelism. You see, the church's responsibility during this time on the kingdom calendar during the betrothal phase is to have all of these ornaments being sewn upon her wedding garment so that the bride is making herself ready for her bridegroom. And while each ornament points to God's grace and his love and is a very important part of a bride that is actually ready. Evangelism itself is the dazzling reflection of the miraculous grace and love of Christ through his invitation to the wedding. It is evangelism itself. Every time we hear that word evangelism, you may have different responses, fear, maybe anxiety, maybe you tense up. Maybe the first thing you think of is, uh, I'm not an evangelist, right? Comes into the conversation and people shut down immediately, especially if you're an introvert, which is not me, by the way, <laughs> but it is my husband and it's others in my family. Introverts especially, they hear that word and they go, whoops, not me. It's probably because you don't actually understand the word evangelism and nobody's ever told you that evangelism wasn't a sign up as an option. <laughs> if you are a Christian, you are an evangelist. You see, evangelism is the central theme of the New Testament. There's no New Testament without evangelism. See, evangelism comes from the Greek word enugilion, the EU that that starts out with. EU, that phrase simply is, means good, good. 
And the word is derived from anglos. Anglos, which simply means a messenger. You probably can guess another word, another English word that comes from that. Angel. Angel. See, evangelism, evangelist simply means a good messenger. A messenger who brings good news. Now, first of all, I don't understand why anyone in this generation has a problem with that. This generation is so built on self and the good. Well, I only want to hear positive things, right? Anything that does not sit well with their flesh is negative. It's negative thinking. Being told no is negative thinking. They can't do something. Negative thinking. Um, being corrected and rebuked. That's a negative person. Get them out of my life, right? So they only want positive and they only want good things. I only want to hear good things. Tickle my ears. Tell me what I want to hear. I only want the good things. I don't know why they'd have a problem with an evangelist who's only bringing good news, the gospel, but not just good news. They're just a good messenger. Here's the reason why. The word's not really good news to those who don't want to say yes to the wedding. They're not interested. This isn't good news to them. But see, to those who do want to say yes, they're eagerly waiting to hear, it is good. And so the evangelist is bringing a good message, a message of love and a message of victory. That in Christ, you are loved. And in Christ, you have found victory over this world and the enemy and everything that it throws at you and that you do have a future. And you do have a hope. And there is a bridegroom coming back to you who is going to love you now and then in your fullness. It is meant to bring relief. It is a healing balm to its recipients that will receive it. See, the gospel is the medicine to the hospital, which is the world, full of sick and dying patients. So that they can come into the healed body that is well, that is Christ, into the bride of Christ. And we know that God desires that all are saved, that all come to repentance. Therefore, evangelism is the key adornment for preparing the bride and making her ready. But I want you to understand this. While this is our work. While this is our part of being a wise bridesmaid and adorning the bride correctly by being an evangelist, by sharing the good news from the word of God. I want you to make sure you hear me when I tell you this and that this is as clear as ever. The church is not expected to save anyone. Only God can do that. You save no one. Individual believers in the church do not save anyone. You are commanded to go. You are commanded to be the messenger. You are to deliver the truth, the good news. Whatever message God asks you to speak, you are to speak. 
You are sowing the seeds among the soil or you are watering the seeds that were planted among the soil, but you do not reap the harvest. You are not responsible for the response with those to whom you share. That, well, that's between them and God. See, your only call in adorning the bride is to be faithful, to deliver the message, to share truth. That's the role of the evangelist. And the evangelist brings the good news, the good message. That's the Great Commission. Look, that's very different than someone like me or others who our gift and our calling lines up with prophecy, the calling of prophets from the past. See, the, the calling of the prophet was very different than an evangelist. Their calling was to warn. Their calling was to warn about judgment. Their calling was to rebuke. Their calling was to call people back to repentance. And then evangelism is thrown in, yes, because by calling, by warning about the judgment that's coming, by rebuking them and telling them where they had gone astray, by being a messenger for God, by telling them about maybe the judgment that is to come and warning them of that, there was still some evangelism because by calling the people back to repentance, they were giving them the hope that they could be reconciled back to God. That's a very different calling than an evangelist. Let me tell you, if your calling is the calling like an Old Testament prophet, you will be treated the same as an Old Testament prophet. It is a shoot the messenger. They will stone you. They will wait to set a trap for you. You will not find many joining you on that road. But the evangelist, well, that your call isn't the same as the one with the gift of prophecy. Therefore, you're always bringing just the good news always ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in you, for the goodness of Jesus Christ and his victory and his love. But even as we deliver whatever message we've been called to deliver, we are not responsible for the hearers. Our obedience to deliver the message is all that we're called to do. Now, if you fail to deliver the message, if you believe you have no part in evangelism, that you don't have to share and give an answer, that you can keep it private, uh, then you've buried your talent. Let me explain something to you. The parable of the talents, every single person has at least one talent. Every. There's no person on this planet that is a believer that does not have a talent. Because the one talent starts with the Great Commission and the call to share. And if you believe that you do not have to do that, you will find, just like the rest of the parable of the talent, that you have been a foolish bridesmaid and you are cast out of his presence because your lamp was not filled with oil. You did not have the Holy Spirit. You are not adorning the bride and preparing. See, these are the instructions from the word of God that we immediately shut our ears off to because they sting. See, discipline stings. And we don't want discipline. And yet the goal of instruction, even through evangelism, of going and sharing and teaching and instructing, instructing was, yes, to invite the believer in, but to also help the believer to spiritually mature so that they were right, that through the power and under the control of the Holy Spirit, the church would be an active witness 
that Christ's bride would carry the ketubah to the world to share, spreading his message of mercy and grace and love to the unbeliever and then to the believer, the instruction and the correction and the, the discipline needed to help them battle temptations and to stay set apart and to grow in holiness and faithfulness. See, that was the early church. They lived what Jesus taught. They lived by his example. They arrayed the church in the ornaments of grace. That is the question that we have to ask ourselves as we respond to this time of shaking and awakening. Listen, evangelism. I want to close with this tonight. Evangelism is an essential part of the church's preparation for the return of the bridegroom. Because in you sharing Christ and you putting the bride on display as you take the wedding invitation out to the byways and the highways and invite all who will hear and come. That is what causes the church to grow. That is what causes the church to grow. And as we continue to prepare Christ's bride for this coming heavenly wedding celebration, which is drawing so near, we can not neglect these ornaments any longer. Or like Israel, we will find we have forgotten our first love. It is such a joy to prepare the wedding garments. Jesus said to Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. Why? Because to another church, he said, as he's saying to us today, awake, bride, awake from your slumber, rise. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. I stand at the door and knock. If any of you hear my voice, any of you hear my voice and invite me in, if you will return to me, then I will return to you. I will come in. You will have intimate relationship and fellowship with him. He will clothe you in the garments, the wedding garments you're supposed to be clothed in, not these tattered garments that you have neglected and not been caring for, no ornaments that have been prepared. Look, worship is obedience. There is no salvation apart from obedience because there is no obedience apart from the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, our helper who helps us provide and uh, or, um, attend to and adorn and prepare the bride, well, we're just a foolish bridesmaid, a foolish virgin. Christ right now is observing his bride. He's observing our preparation and our adornment. He's calling us to return and we have to get back. We have to get back to adorning her properly. We've done it wrong for far too long from worship Authentic worship, it's not about the songs that you sing. And yes, while the songs are important, meaning, first of all, they have to be doctrinally sound. Just singing a worship song that uses the name of Christ doesn't even make it true. All right. We have to get back to authentic worship, not with our lips and just with our hands, but with our heart and with obedience. Back to the word of saying, 
Christ, I am coming to you to worship you for who you are. And I want to know who you truly are, even if it convicts me. To instruction. We have to return back to sound instruction. Stop looking for pastors or Bible study teachers who tickle your ears and build up your self-esteem to teach you how to love yourself and, and help you look inward to yourself so you become a stronger, more independent person. Look for those who are guiding you only in the ketubah, the priceless ketubah to the word. The yes will step on your toes and convict you, make you look at yourself and maybe feel a little guilt. But knowing that you can boldly approach the throne of grace to find forgiveness and a Holy Spirit who will help you and refine you and put you back on track to doing the things that Christ has called you to do. And from that, you will find healing and blessing and worth. You will learn to love even yourself the way you were called to love yourself and others. Fellowship. Let us return. Let us seek out the brethren that we have neglected for so long. Let's stop being in competition and say, I need you. I need your gifts. Let's be mutually encouraged together. It's why we have this year the Lord calling us to our cultivated women's retreat. Finally, where we can meet each other face to face. For such a time as this, the Lord is saying, I am gathering women from all across this world now, even in the midst of a dark time where the enemy is pressing forward. Why? Because I am preparing my bride, my remnant of wise bridesmaids, and it will start with these adornments. You will come together to authentically worship him. I'm telling you in a way you may not have experienced worship in a long time for sound instruction that you may adore your ketubah and begin to look and find what you need for fellowship, authentic fellowship with people who love you. We love you. We need you. We want you. We want to prepare you so that we're working together for his soon return. For what? So you can go out and evangelize, properly evangelize, so that when our bridegroom returns, he finds you as a wise bridesmaid who has attended his bride properly. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. You will be allowed to enter in. He was truly your Lord, your bridegroom, whom you worship. You see, the wedding day approaches. It is the midnight hour, and he is only returning for a wise, spotless bride who's radiant. Let us prayerfully make sure that we are hearing his voice and responded and that we are ready. Thank you guys so much for joining me this week for week four of our becoming a wise bridesmaid, attending the bride of Christ. We only have two weeks left in this study, but it is so beneficial for the times that we are going into. For all of you who are joining us at our Cultivated Women's Retreat, I am so excited in September for the opportunity to spend time with you. For those of you who don't know about it, we are about close to 70% full. We have about 50 spots left for this retreat. 
We would love, love, love to have you in St. Augustine, Florida this year to join us. I will be speaking along with Matthew Mayer, the pastor of Coastal um, Christian in New Jersey and Andrea Mayer. We'll have some other speakers. Katie Alves, her husband Connor are going to be our worship leaders. I'm telling you, it will be a treat to have them lead you into very authentic worship and not just singing worship. I'm telling you the worship is exactly where the Lord is calling us back to in this day to worship. The fellowship, the breaking of bread, um, just everything that the Lord has in store for us. For all of those who are going to be with us, I cannot wait to be with you face to face. For those of you who can't join us this year, thank you for being a part of the body and just praying for us and our time as the Holy Spirit meets us there. I look forward to seeing you on She Rises the rest of this week as we continue to gain instruction and encourage one another encourage one another during this time and good lord willing next week for our next part of attending the bride of christ becoming a wise bridesmaid blessings